I'm Chef George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. This week on our show, George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, we're talking all about passion. We're sitting down with Dr. Eric Sepinowski, a fourth-generation farmer on the east end of Long Island, as well as a writer and scholar. We'll talk about how our relations to the land have shaped our sense of place and community. My father, when done farming, would go out on the waters and earn extra money digging clams, tonging oysters, and dredging scallops. And that was a way of life for many families like mine. And you can still see evidence of that in the backyards of a lot of East Marion Orient homes where you can find scallop shacks. Also joining us is the legendary Olympic bobsledder, Devin Harris. You may know his story from the hit movie, Cool Runnings. Well, he's also an author, motivational speaker, and philanthropist. And he's here to talk with us about the power of passion and persistence to live one's best life. It's time to come together on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. Keep on pushing. The inspiration behind the Disney blockbuster movie Cool Runnings is the 1988 Olympic champion Devin Harris. Devin Harris was raised in the violent ghetto environment of the Olympic Gardens in Kingston, Jamaica. The greatest gift he ever received believed that a positive attitude and a never-say-die philosophy would carry him farther than a sense of injustice and a heart filled with anger. Devin Harris was selected to the first Jamaican bobsled team that completed in the 1988 Olympic Games in Calgary, Canada. The Keep On Pushing Foundation, founded it in 2006, aims to support and enhance the kids' education in disadvantaged communities by providing practical solutions to the challenges, preventing them from getting educated. Thanks for joining us, Devin. It is an honor, honor to have you here with us today, my friend. Hey, George, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Looking forward to the conversation. And uh, Alex, all he's heard about um, a lot of good coming is, is just the Devin Harris, the Devin Harris. Yeah, I've been excited for this. I, I loved Cool Runnings as a kid. I said to George, I was right in the age where I probably watched that movie 10 times a day and drove my parents nuts. So Alex, now you're making me feel bad, man, because you're ma- making me sound like I'm an old guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you know what? I never knew your age, but I checked your age before uh, we, we came on. And you're still younger than me. You're still you're still a baby, man. So, but yeah. we've had so many conversations over time, and um, known each other now a while. One thing we've never talked about, though, is is your kind of roots in Jamaica. And before we get into maybe growing up in Jamaica, though, what about your food roots? What what in Jamaica was your your favorite food memory growing up? <laughs> Well, my like, where do I start? Um, I love coconuts, and and I have a scar on my finger to prove it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, uh, you know, so my early years were, were with my grandmother in the country, and um, I, and I I can clearly remember too. I used to call her Mama, and I'm like, Mama, I want uh, coconut, and she go, Okay, well, you know, I get you. I'll cut one for you when we get home. And I guess I've always been impatient. So I, I, I rushed ahead um, ahead of her, and I went home, and I got the machete and started cutting. And I was impatient, couldn't wait to cut this thing. And I remember making a big effort. <laughs> and next thing I knew, it was just blood all over my fingers. Man. <laughs> um, yeah, learned my lesson then. Um, but, you know, we, we so I'm a kind of a chicken guy, though. Like, you know, you cook it in any way, shape, or form. 
And so Jamaicans, we love brown stew chicken with what we call rice and peas. Americans say beans and rice. It's, right. it's not even peas, it's kidney beans, you know? Um, so that was kind of one of the things that, uh, you know, I loved growing up. Well, it's funny, you know, we have talked about, you know, when you when you relocated, you came here, you came to New York, and you kind of fell back on your initial roots from Jamaica, from training and the and the um, basically the successful passion and athlete within you, but you didn't stick in the food service industry. You you opted out very quickly <laughs> from the restaurant world. Yeah, it was kind of a means to an end. I just moved to to New York and trying to find my way around and. Uh, the first opportunity was a job in a restaurant. And I remember um, the first day going to the guy, uh, you know, to be interviewed. Um, and, you know, and I come from a culture where the more qualifications you are, the, the more likely you are to get the job. Only to discover that, that I was overqualified. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not like, you know, I just need a job. I just need a job. And he goes, but you're not going to stay with me for long. And I did not deny that I had no intention of, Stay more than two weeks, but I ended up spending 18 months. Well, thank God for the universe that you weren't successful in the restaurant industry because you have done so much. But let's let's go back because, you know, of course, um, a lot of people are fans of, of the movie Cool Runnings and everything, but it's not 100% accurate. Mm-hmm. How the heck did a bobsled team come out of, of Jamaica? Yeah, I mean it's uh, so. <laughs> two, it's kind of interesting. Two Americans who lived in Jamaica, they were in a local bar in Kingston. Um, you know, maybe had one too many drinks, and they were discussing this popular belief in Jamaica that Jamaican women and athletes are the best in the world. I mean, we Jamaicans are saying that we're the bomb, you know. <laughs> and um, um, they were trying to figure out how to prove that. And um, they saw, if you have seen Cool Runners, you'll see Sanka Coffee racing this wooden yes. cart down a winding mountain road. We actually push do cart. do that in Jamaica, push cart, push cart derby. I've never done it myself. It's very dangerous, actually. And it I just don't do dangerous things. Um, but to these guys, it looked like bobsledding except for the ice. And then they discovered that a big part of a bobsled race is a start. They need sprinters. We have lots of sprinters. But they couldn't get any of the sprinters, the summer guys, to do this crazy thing. And so they came to the Army. At the time, I was a young lieutenant um, and had Olympic aspirations. I was actually dreaming of competing in the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, Korea, though, not Calgary. Mm -hmm. And so they came to the Army, and my colonel suggested that I try to offer the team. And now, since I'm going to go to the team trials anyway, well, might as well try to make the team, you know, as <laughs> going to be my shot to go to the Olympic Games. And I'm just I'm just not wired that way to be an also run, you know. I was going to go, and I had no idea, quite frankly, how I would make the team, but, you know, I just tried my darnest. Um, and so there's a selection process that's very similar to what the major nations did back then. It's kind of like the NFL combine, so you have to sprint 30, 60, 100 meters 300 meters through a shot put from between your legs, uh, mm-hmm. do what we call a push test with a makeshift sled. So they're testing for speed and explosive ball. Um, my challenge was that I was a, really a middle distance runner. I ran 800 and 1500 meters. I wasn't a sprinter, 
But, you know, I tried really hard, and I, and I think they kind of like my smile, and so they selected me. <laughs> <laughs> Is there ever a point where in your training, and you're going, you're going for it, you're going for the brass ring, you're trying to make the team, you're trying to get selected, you're out there, that you just say, I'm not sure, man, I don't know. Uh, how do you pick yourself up? Yeah, so um, <laughs> our first, what I would describe, bobsled trip was in September of 1987. So if I'm saying our first bobsled trip is September of 87, the Olympics are in February 88. So you realize that already we are way behind the curveball, right? Did you even have a bobsled then? No. No. <laughs> way behind the curveball. George, have a bobsled. We didn't even know what a bobsled looked like. So, so we, we go to Lake Placid in September 87, and, and we met our right. coach and saw a bobsled for the first time. And the American team, and we saw the track for the first time. The American team was there practicing their starts on the ice rink, and they invited us to practice with them. And so we, um, we went out on the ice trying to push this thing, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, this thing is harder than I thought, because I, I, could I couldn't walk on the ice. And I'm thinking, if I can't walk on ice, how the hell am I going to be able to run on ice? <laughs> yeah, the spray. Um, but, you know, the, the, and it's a, a re, I think um, I never really thought about the life lesson from there until just two days ago I was giving a talk. And I said, look, you know, we want to talk about resilience and just, you know, embracing the challenges that we, we, uh, that we face in life. Um, and a lot of people will say, well, you know, I don't know how to do that period. And essentially what I said is, I don't know how to do that yet. You know, I said, I, you know, I said, what this Bob said thing is harder than I thought, not that it was too hard for me to do. Uh, and that was kind of the, I didn't articulate it in that way, in those words throughout the experience, but that was the attitude, the approach to it, that, yeah, it's hard. Yes, um, and people think I'm joking because I clown around so much. When I tell them I'm scared of speed and height, but I am scared of speed and height. Can, can we, uh, I, I just got to, on the speed and the height part, okay. Now, I can't even imagine coming in even last, never mind qualifying. But we're talking about, how, what's the speed, Devin, that well, you're going? You know, Downhill, it's on ice. 80 miles, on, 80 miles an hour from zero to 80 with no engine. And it's an ice shoot. I mean, it's like hitting concrete if you crash. Um, I wouldn't say that because you you don't walk off with as many bruises as you would if you're on a concrete. But it's not it's not a fun experience. Uh, <laughs> did you ever crash, or did you crash often? My oh, so the most famous crash is that one during the Olympics, and that was my seventh crash for the season. And we're talking about between um, October 87, when the first time we went on a bobsled track, to February 88. Um, and so I when remember you remember that moment, it was amazing. The world, the world was holding their breath in that crash. That's and that's like you know. So when I talk about failure, uh, you, you know, in, in my talks, and I ask people who have ever failed and. Like, you know, invariably, I'm the only guy who was ever failed in the group, in the room on international TV. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody saw it, man. A, beer, a little beer. Yeah. Um, my brother, who has been in one of your talks, and he, he sends his best right now. Yeah. Um, 
and it was some time ago. I think it was maybe 15 years ago that you met. And still to this day, he wanted me to relay to you that you have five key principles that you shared, and it's he still carries that with him to this day. Can you can you share some of those with us? Well, you know, oh wow, well, I, I can't remember what I shared with him. I, I, well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna tee it up for you. Yeah, it's a dream, mm-hmm. motivation, wow. discipline, faith, perseverance. Yes. yes. And, and those are your so, words. That's your yeah. Your and over the years, I've I've kind of changed those five principles into my five P's, which are they still correlate in you know, a perception, purpose, uh, personal leadership, people, and persistence. Always. Um, and I think that it's yeah, they're all so important, man. Whether we're talking about having a dream or you know um, changing your perception, you know, creating a vision, um, which leads to these dreams that we have, these ideas that of how we would like our life to be far more dynamic and far more vibrant than what we're experiencing now, which you know has absolutely nothing to do with what we're, we're experiencing or what we experienced in the past, except your ability to just imagine something better, right? Um, and so that those were the, the, the thoughts and ideas I shared with him. And um, I, I think about purpose as kind of, um, so if, if your dreams are, you know, what you like to become purpose or motivation is why? Uh, why, do you, why do you want this? And it's really, it starts out, quite frankly, with why do you want this for yourself personally? I think that's a fair place to start here in a challenging environment. You know, how can I make my life better and why do I want this better life for myself? But I think that, that as we we get embark on this success journey and we start to um, enjoy some success, in my opinion, it behooves us to want to see how we can use that success now to serve others. Mm-hmm. So a higher purpose beyond beyond ourselves, you know, um, and and so the discipline piece is akin to the personal leadership that it behooves us. We have a responsibility to to work and grow ourselves to become the best versions of ourselves and uh, become as valuable as we can, so we can add value to the lives of others um, and with the others, the people recognizing that. Uh, no matter how ambitious and talented and um, competent you are, you can't do this thing by yourself, man. You need people. You need partners to d- take this journey with you. And, yeah, the persistence is perhaps my favorite. Um, because, yeah, it's the worst secret in the world. You're going to have challenges, and you better find a way to keep on pushing, to persist, to get through. Well, that's uh, one of the P's that come up quite often. And one of the things that touches my heart, and I signed on immediately when you when you gave a shout out, and I said, of course, anything, anything for you, is your keep on pushing foundation on what you have done globally. Um, why don't you share with that, some of that with us? Yeah, you know, so one of the things that all of us have in common, George, uh, you know, no matter where we're from and uh, ethnic background, race, et cetera, et cetera, is, is the fact that we've been kids. We've mm-hmm. all been kids at, at one stage, right? Some of us are still kids, big kids. <laughs> um, 
you know, but I saw that, you know, they said the children are a future. And, and for me, it's not a cliche. It's such a true and profound statement. And I feel that I have this responsibility to do what I can to help the next generation, especially those who come from an environment like I did. Because once upon a time, I was this little kid who looked around his environment and didn't see um, much hope, much opportunity. And, uh, but still dare to dream somehow, you know, dare to create this perception of a, of a better world. And so having that experience and having had a chance to see a little bit of the world, um, I recognize that there are kids who start out like me, who have similar ambitions and similar uh, potential. And so my job is to do what I can to um, mm -hmm. provide an avenue uh, for the, that potential to blossom, and hence the Keep On Pushing Foundation, uh, which I started back in 2006. And uh, most of the work, the bulk of the work is done at my old elementary school back in the old, you know, near Olympic Gardens. No, that's not where we raise our Olympians, but <laughs> <laughs> we will go with that. Uh, really tough, rough, uh, violent, impoverished uh, neighborhood. So we, we support a breakfast program, a school supplies program, we just uh, build, build what we call a sick base, kind of like a nurse's station where mm -hmm. you know, kids who aren't feeling so well during the school day can go rest up a little bit. And there's a, a, a little room there, private room for the guidance counselor to kind of guide some of them. Again, we're going through tough times. And um, our next goal is to uh, start a computer lab, um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of uh, prepare them it's, it, it, for the 21st century, give them those tools. You travel the world, Devin, and speak to many people. And you as yourself, uh, not being uh, actually on the, on the golden ticket, you came out. How do you encourage and what do you say to those that um, you are the example, you're the lead mm -hmm. of you can make it, you can, you can be, you can be that person? Yeah, I, I think the best way is through uh, the example of my own life. You know, I get to um, share my my experiences and my insights. Uh, you know, it's not stuff that, I'm, that I've read in a book, but stuff that I've lived. Um, and to try to convey to them that uh, they have that same stuff within them as well. You know, they obviously they, they'll never be able to become a, uh, first member of a Jamaican bobsled team, but they don't have to, right? They they have their own dreams and, and aspirations that they can go after. And, and, and I'm not suggesting that it's easy. It is bleep hard. It's really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and there's on so many different levels, but I think the, the perhaps the most difficult part of it and, and is, to, is to believe that you can actually do it. And that belief really comes from you keep telling yourself that you can. You know, you you have to literally talk yourself into becoming the person that you want to be. It's a mental game. It, it is a mental game. It absolutely is. And I remember, um, you know, when I became commissioned as an officer and was back in Jamaica in the officer's mess, uh, break, sitting at the table breaking bread with my fellow officers, feeling so out of place because I was a ghetto kid. Um, and in, in, on the normal circumstances, I'd be back in the hood 
you know, up against a wall being searched by one of these guys that I'm not breaking bread with. They're my peers. And I, and I had to do a real, I, I described it as a real number on myself, you know, mentally just, um, I guess, convincing myself, constantly talking to myself uh, uh, to, to recognize that I actually earned this. It wasn't given to me. I did the same things that they did in order to earn my spot at that table. And, well, yeah, and so that's the challenge for all of us, I think. My brother, thanks for joining us today. Um, it was uh, an honor that we virtually broke bread. Next time, we'll uh, we'll do it. We'll do it live. Yeah, man, I'm I'm looking forward to it as well. You know, maybe we'll do some um, brown stew, chicken and rice and peas. There we go. Maybe some jerk there. chicken. We'll just throw it in the grill. <laughs> I love jerk chicken too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Devin. That was Devin Harris, three-time Olympian, author, motivational speaker, athletic ambassador, and philanthropist. For more about Devin and keep on pushing, visit devinharris.com. Every year in the U.S., more than 10 billion donuts are filled, glazed, and pumped with jelly and cream. Where did the sweet snack obsession begin? The modern donut was the hit food of the century at the 33 Chicago World's Fair, produced automatically about 80 dozen an hour, making them the wave of the future. Some people feel donuts are all about the whole. No hole, no donut. Without that ring of fried sugar dough, it's simply a crawler. Take it from someone who has made their fair share of pastry. The donut is the sweet that transcends generations and knows no ethnic or geographic barrier. Today's chefs apply artisanal ingredients such as creme brulee and bacon and maple syrup, a far cry from its humble roots as the cake-like coffee dunking donut. Maybe its longtime success is not in the hole, it just reminds most of the pleasures of childhood. After all, who can resist a warm, fresh-made apple cider donut? And that's good to know. Recently, Alex and I were in the kitchen, creating some exciting dishes and having fun with food. You know, Alex, the other day I was in a conversation with a good friend of ours, Howie, and it's so funny. He was showing me a photo of this new ship that they're rolling out on the Staten Island Ferry. His grandson, of course, is uh, training to be a captain on the ferry, and I was absolutely amazed. I saw that there's actually a like little cafe on the ferry. Or maybe it's like a little food kiosk. It's only a 20-minute shuttle across yeah. to Manhattan. And But he explained to me that, um, well, in the morning, you know, there's commuters and they want to grab a cup of coffee and everything. So I said, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Which, of course, then tripped in my mind some of our coffee adventures that we've had over the years, yeah. which are very interesting, sometimes <laughs> – comical, but at the same time, um, I think it, it, it kind of fits with um, everything that we that we kind of do. Well, that Staten Island Ferry is a free ferry too, right? Yeah. The coffee's not though. That's what I mean. There's yeah. big money in yeah. coffee, the so coffee's sure not. to pay for that new ship somehow. Yeah. New York City doesn't have enough money to just be buying extra ferries. And speak about free. Howie also told me he got the coffee this morning for a dollar and three cents. Where does one get a coffee for a dollar and three cents? Our passion that we pull out into everything. And, you know, so we say, okay, now it's time for a road trip. Remember that time we needed to get uh, new uh, coffee equipment yes. for commercial for a uh, 
uh, food service operation. Yes. We actually went into a city to a friend, and he toured us through the Jacob Javits, where they do what? tens of thousands of cups a day and we looked at all their state-of-the-art equipment. Now, technology has come a long way in in a case like this. And their uh, thermal warmers and keeps it very gentle uh, because, as you know, know, coffee has a lifespan of like 15 minutes once it's a short lifespan. So this is able to extend it out. Um, But again, this is to the extent that we like to go. We like to go and, you know, do these trips, uh, find out the best, experiment, and then and then come back. Yeah, well, that's what I'm. That's why to me the quality is the most important. I I didn't really know about this until I was in my mid twenties and I was working as a cook at a uh, Michelin starred restaurant in Brooklyn. <laughs> and when you have a Michelin star, every single thing goes through the highest level of scrutiny. You know that, and I'll never forget. And we went through this for every single layer of the menu, but even coffee. When they wanted to change coffee providers or what type of coffee there, it was like a four to six week process. We had every single kind of coffee bean from all over the world brought in, how fast it was ground to brewed to drank, how long it could sit, how long it could hold, uh, just the level of intensity that goes into the quality of coffee at a place that has something like a Michelin star makes you realize that there is a lot, a lot, a lot that goes into coffee. And from that dollar three cent cup that Howie has in Sag Harbor to what you get if you're having, I don't know, a perfect coffee break at a place like the American Hotel, there mm. is just so much that can vary in quality. And quality is something we've always pride ourselves in when researching coffee. And it doesn't necessarily come down to money because coffee is a very, very inexpensive commodity yeah. because you're not consuming gallons of it in the, in the moment. You know, the culture, let's say in Europe or Italy, you go into a coffee bar, you pop down the euro, you walk up, you have your shot, of, of, of coffee or your, your double shot, and then you go on with your day going to going to work, et cetera. And there's a certain, um, I think, feeling that's, that's behind that. You're not just with that paper cup. Yeah. Um, I think Seinfeld did an did a amazing comedy routine one time with the people that walked down the street with the gallon paper cups, like yeah. it's a trophy and they're walking. Well, it is. It's like a status symbol. It's like, look at my giant, you know, corporate but coffee cup. That five minutes it. after it's been poured, it's gone. Really, yeah, it the, really is. the quality of the coffee has diminished. It is totally gone. And you're not. I don't think you're you're taking the essence of what is behind that cup. What well, is behind that, that experience that you just spoke about in Europe? Which I mean, that's like a microcosm for everything that's different between the United States and Europe, right? Like their portions are smaller. The way they eat is different. Life is slower. I think it's something that we could learn about here in this country. But even that was part of the research when we were changing the coffee program was the China. What kind of cup is it served in? You know, even what is the saucer like? What is the little pot that's holding the rest of it made out? There's just so many layers. Yeah, you know, my pet peeve is, you know, I, I don't like coffee and paper. No. I'd rather have it in actually a good old diner mug because yeah. it also protects the thermal nature of, of the coffee itself. Absolutely. What is it? What good is it to have a uh, cup of coffee that is is poured at, let's say, 180 degrees 
into a cold cup, a cold vessel, a cold yeah. pot. Well, you're just cold and you're cool. Have ice coffee. coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Have, yeah, have an iced coffee. Growing and harvesting food from the land and water is a way of life for farmers. A very romantic way of life, you would think, but filled with daily challenges. That, when faced and overcome, has their delicious rewards. A great example to us all. While farming each summer and pursuing his formal education as a teacher and writer, Dr. Eric Sepanowski, PhD, a fourth-generation farmer, became interested in relationships to the land and our sense of place and community. In 2020, he received a PhD from Northeastern University for his ethnographic study of North Fork, Long Island. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Pleasure to be here. What was it like growing up on the North Fork? Now, you're, what, 35 37. Oh, pretty good, 37. So what was it like? Take me back 30 years. There was a thriving farming community, and Bayman were all about on the waters digging clams, grabbing oysters. In fact, my father, when done farming, would go out on the waters and earn extra money digging clams, tonguing oysters, and dredging scallops. And that was a way of life for many um, families like mine. And you can still see evidence of that in the backyards of a lot of East Marion Orient homes where you can find scallop shacks, little opening um, sheds where people would would go about their work after they were on the bay. So there was a real rich community life out on the East End, on the North Fork growing up. And I really had a front row seat to that because my grandfather would say, hop in, and we'd take a ride to a neighbor's farm or farm down the road or to the docks when a dragger boat would pull in with sea scallops. And I got to get to know all those people and their ways of life, and I got to also see it change as um, that life um, transitioned into a new one. Now, we have to put it in perspective, of course, because um, not everyone knows the North Fork, especially out of our region. Um, the Long Island as a whole is shaped like a fish, and you have the South Fork and the North Fork. Uh, what, Alex, about 100 or so miles out of the city? Yeah, about 100 miles outside the city. Okay. So... Um, it's, it's quite some distance, and the North Fork is known primarily as farming community within Suffolk County, which is one of the top farming communities in the state of New York, mm -hmm. whereas New York is what ranked, it changes slightly year to year, but about anywhere from third to fifth in the country in agriculture. So it's, it's a big agricultural area now, so I can't even imagine growing up at that time. My family farmed more than 300 acres spanning South Holds, East Marion, and Orient. And we were not uncommon in that scale and uh, intensity. My father would start the irrigation motors in the morning in the summer and run them all the way around the clock just to keep up with um, raising that many vegetables. We also had 30-plus Puerto Rican men who lived on our farm and worked seasonally. And um, their presence was was absolutely necessary to to farm at that scale. The Sepanoskis, the Lathams, the Terrys, and many other farmers on the East End, on the North Fork in particular, had those big crews and tons of machinery just to keep up with that 
with that growing, that scale of growing. Um, but in and amidst those farms, there were woodlands, marshlands, secret spots to be as a kid and really just be yourself out in that landscape and come across woodlands that were filled with piles of potato uh, stones where the potatoes were hmm. um, graded. You know, you'd grade the, the stones off the grater and the, the stones would go in the woods you can dump in a pile. So as a kid, you come across these, these giant piles of stones, these field stones, and standing on top of them in a woods, you got a sense of just the, the way that farming had written itself into the landscape before you. Um, giving a sense of the the transitions that you were that you were part of, particularly being part of a farm family that was very um, f present in my my consciousness as a kid. Was farming as a kid was it was it play? Was it or it's always a mixture of play and um, responsibility. You are simultaneously encouraged to be a kid and for lack of a better term, raise hell. Um, and you are also apprenticing, a sense of apprenticeship on the land. And it's in small ways, it's sitting on the, the seat of the tractor, sitting on your, your father's or your grandfather's lap and just holding the wheel of the tractor as you cultivate at mm -hmm. two miles an hour. Or it's being in the potato truck trying to keep pace with the combine and not let the potatoes shoot off the other side of the, the truck. Um, it's learning how to talk to customers at the farm stand. It's so many little, little interactions and little moments of teaching that over time uh, layer upon one another to give you a, a sense of place within the family and the farming community and a sense of place and time. Would you say it's improved? I know Alex and myself talk about this a lot, but has it improved or has it become more challenging in, in today's times? Um, you don't have all those migrant workers there that would come seasonally. Mm -hmm. um, the challenges. Different styles of eating and cooking and food. Um, so is it more of a challenge? I would say it's just a different challenge. There has always been an evolution, and I use that word cautiously because I don't mean an evolution towards something better, but an evolution from one style of farming to another. And you need to be keeping up with those changes. Um, the farming of my father's childhood and my grandfather's childhood look completely different than the farming of my childhood, and they look different for my five-year-old son now. The tastes and styles of eating have certainly changed. We would, as a family, have 50-pound bags of onions, 50-pound bags of potatoes on the side of a trailer for the families who wanted to buy in bulk. And tomatoes as well, by the box, we'd sell in bulk. And um, those styles of eating have changed to something more um smaller portions, but also more boutique and uh, different styles of um, different varieties of foods, different vegetables and fruits. Well, that's what I was going to say is I think one 
thing that your generation and you over at SEPS has done exceptionally well is you really have a curated farm stand experience. It's you could go there and make a fine dining meal out of everything that is available to you. So as opposed to just getting sacks of potatoes and boxes of tomatoes, you can really yeah. leave there and make like a 10 course meal at your house if you wanted to with all ingredients from the farm. That's the idea. And the more local products from artisans that we can promote, uh, the better it is for ag the agricultural community. Now, one question that I had for you was, there's farmland all across the country. But I think one thing that makes the East End unique is the proximity of the farms to salt water. Like you said, Bayman, and then there's also commercial fishing docks over by you. What effect does that have on the type of farming that we have out here by us on the East End? Uh, historically, the bunker or Manhattan were a source of fertilizer on farms, and there's evidence of that on Orient Beach State Park, where they actually processed a lot of those fish for um, for nitrogen, for fertilizer. So there is a long historical interaction or, or interplay between the marine ecosystem and the farm as an ecosystem. I mean, farmers, grad, farmers and gardeners both um, drew on the marsh for salt hay for their animals and for their gardens. Um, so there is that there's that there's that connection there. Um, in our own, in my time, that no longer, um, that grazing cattle on the marshes no longer <laughs> exists, but you do have a really beautiful exchange of the Bayman, um, oystermen, I should say oyster women too, commercial fishermen who come by the farm and drop off the things that they um, pull from the sea and take what they want from the farm. Yeah, so I was going to say one of my favorite memories is the three of us sitting on your farm and your dad rolling up on a tractor with a beer in one hand and his <laughs> other giant meat hook of a hand filled with oysters, popping them with a Swiss army knife and just sucking down oysters as he drives by. It's like, yeah, you couldn't make it in up. that cloud of dust. And you go, who was that mass man? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Eric, you're kind of a renaissance man. OK, and I think. um you know, we talked about what farms were like, how growing is different today, but also the farmers are different today. You left the farm and a number of your generation left and have come back, such as the Lyles or the Schmitz or the Lees. Um, you went out and pursued other forms of education and life. How has that helped you today? Um, what what has that brought in to the farm? Oh, it's that's a big question, long, complicated lead up to that one too. Um, what it's yielded so far is a an appreciation for the cosmopolitan farm stand goer and what they're looking for, not, not only in the kinds of foods that they're looking for at the farm stand to make those meals that Alex spoke about but also in what they're looking for in terms of an engagement with the land and with the people who work it. They want to interact with the person who is able to uh, talk about their history um, and the history of this place and also appreciate where they come from and the kinds of experiences that they've had. Has your, has your time spent with other cultures, and I know 
for myself, my extensive travels, also Alex, we two of us discuss this again all the time. Um, your time spent abroad and some of the same areas I've filmed in and, and have worked in and yeah. in Switzerland and Basel and Zurich and in Ireland. You, I filmed in Galway. You lived in Galway, Santa Domingo. Uh, you probably did the same food trail that uh, uh, Alex did across the country and backpacking. How has how those experiences, um, again, brought something to your family or to the to the farm itself to what's being grown right now those experiences um i should say that my ability to move in and amongst different places and cultures stems back completely to my childhood and my um my time on the with my grandfather bumping around and different different fishermen and different farmers you just respect that the, these places you're entering are i should say you have to be honest with the people you're around and when they understand that you come from a farm family there's an immediate sense of recognition that you're coming not to judge them but to be sort of part of what they're doing too and i've moved, i've seen agriculture out west where the motto is, uh, you know, it's, if you have water, you have to use it. Whereas out here, that's different. We have to conserve it. Right. Um, there's different scales of crops and different lifestyles of of um, ranching that we no longer really have here. But for a few locations, perhaps Montauk still does a little bit of that. And to bring all those perspectives back um, helps us as a family make decisions about the future of the farm and really change it to keep it going to conserve water to try new crops and you see what other communities are going through in terms of climate and uh, labor and you bring all those lessons back and it helps helps us make I decisions a, i have a real wild thought that i've never thought of and i've spent a lot of time on farms in your farm can the land, what do you think about this? Can the land sense honesty? If you're not being true, does the land know it? Does the crop know it? <laughs> sure does. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I think there's an energy to everything and, and yeah. life picks up on things that are dishonest. Right. I have this question for you. Why do you keep coming back? Because you're educated. You can do any number of things. You've traveled a lot uh, and you keep coming back. And I'm like you, I keep coming back too. And I think yeah. both of us are kind of here for good. So why? For me, it's, um, you could say something like it's in my blood, it's dirt under my nails, but it's really, for me, it's about bearing witness. Um, I feel it is a, a calling to see what happens with this place from a little kid i always felt like let me just back up a little bit you know in the it'd be four o'clock in the morning i was going out on one of the dragger boats uh, the net boats rather the um, fish trap boats leaving out of greenport and my father would take me we'd go to 7-eleven it was 
open all the time. So everyone would get their coffee and their cigarettes first thing in the morning there. And I'd walk in and there'd be Lou White Cabbage smoking a cigarette sitting in the uh, New York Times, Suffolk Times news rack. You could still smoke inside, I guess, in those days. But the question would always come in moments like that. Are you going to, are you going to take over? Are you going to take over the farm? And I don't think that it was for me taking over the farm so much as, as taking responsibility for, for participating and seeing with my own eyes, what was going to happen to farming and farm families like mine. Somebody has to tell the story. And so a lot of my education has been turning the focus of my art, my teaching, my scholarship back toward this place and its remarkable people. So I've had to, yeah, I've had to sweat it out and grind through August to get all those vegetables onto the farm stand and raise my family and be a dad and all those things. Um, but I've also had to set aside time to talk to people, photograph things, write what I see. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time today and, and for joining us. Yeah, that was great. It's always good talking to you. Always good seeing you guys. That was Dr. Eric Sepanowski, writer, scholar, and fourth generation farmer, Sepp's Family Farm, East Marion, New York. Alex and I have witnessed firsthand many of our friends who work the land, truly have the highest form of conscious connection to the earth, growing from seed against all odds, providing our nourishment never to be taken for granted. For more food, culture, and lifestyle tips, guest interviews, and our podcast, visit WLIW.org radio and ChefGeorgeHirsch.com. And join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WLIWFM and at George Hirsch. Do you remember the time I said, Alex, this is going to be the best cup of coffee you're ever going to make? And it was using French presses. Yeah, you introduced me to a French press. And yeah. I had, I have French presses in every size, shape. Yeah, you do. Whatever. You I know. do now too. Um, I, I, didn't I don't keep time. one in my car. Some people keep one in their car. <laughs> and some people travel know. with them, which is like really bizarre to me. Yeah. You know, and this is coming from someone who travels a lot. And we made the pot. And there's a whole ceremony behind that because we preheat the uh, the press yep. before the grinds even preheat go the in. cups. Uh, the water is at the right temperature. It's at 200 degrees. We pour the hot water in. We time it for exactly. Yeah, give it a good stir. First. Give it a good stir. Make sure it's all blended in. Uh, give it that seven minutes just to to, to steep yep. and to and to brew together. Uh, wrap it because we want that press. See a lot of yeah. people. I see a lot of people have presses, and they, they don't, don't wrap it. With yeah. either a towel or and something, all just, and all that heat goes out, and then the coffee needs that that for brewing. And I particularly like this because I think with food, there's a lot of appreciation when you eat that you stop for a moment and you kind of realize the source. Let's say it's a salad, where it came from, how it traveled, how it got there, how it was harvested, how it was picked. Um, so I kind of always take that moment before I do press it down just to kind of appreciate the whole process because, um, first of all, 
you know I'm very particular about the beans and where they come from. Yep. That they're fair trade, you know, and they're organic because, you know, some beans have laced with um, all kinds of things in it. So back to the press and we going through our first times. But what did we do? We just didn't press it and then talk business, talk shop, talk food, keep going with cooking or whatever we were doing at the moment. We took our presses and we went outside. And fortunately, you yeah, know, the property is on water. beautiful water. And we sat there with our coffee yeah. and our presses. It's a meditation. And we took we took that whole process in. I think that's all in part. It's the, the coffee is outstanding. Make it in a French press or yeah. a Chemex, which is kind of a very lab. Yeah, you know, the funnel. Eh, honestly, to me, that's a lot of mess. Cleaning and, it is my problem. And it's also that. a filter yeah. because when you use filters with coffee, you are having flavor taken out of the beans yeah. and out of the coffee. You're bringing in another ingredient. You're basically. bringing in another thing where yeah. press is totally, totally just nothing but the beans and the water making a beverage. So, you know, that's why it is a French press for me, even though this is, this is a funny little aside. It was patented by two Italians that's in funny. 1929. I could see that though. Italy's also known for great coffee. Totally, totally all about its coffee. So, I mean... It's it's a simple beverage. It's a beverage that most people wake up with. Um, Coffee is simple, but it's a thinking man's beverage. Hmm. You know, going back to what you said about the process we would go through. Yeah, there is that moment of meditation when we drank the coffee, but after the coffee is when the ideas start flowing. And coffee houses, traditionally in Europe, uh, in like the 1550s and on, were really the places that were known for having thinkers. You would get a lot of literature came out of coffee houses. You'd get classical music being written in coffee houses, revolutions being started in coffee houses because people sit down, drink coffee, get jacked up and come up with ideas. Sometimes that's what it's about. The most important thing is with making coffee, even if you don't have the most expensive beans, the highest end equipment or the cups, but as long as you're doing it with passion, and making that coffee with passion, you'll have the best cup of coffee you'll ever have. That's what it's all about, passion. Put love into whatever you do, even your coffee. Glad to have you join us on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. Our producer is Delaney Hafner, along with production support from Kyle Lynch. Supervising producer is Allie Gimble. George Hirsch and Diane Michelli are co-executive producers. George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio is a co-production of Hirsch Media and Audio Engagement Group, LLC. Thanks so much for tuning in to George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, the show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. For more episodes and our podcast, Visit wiw.org slash radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com and your favorite streaming and podcast platforms. We'll see you next week right here on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio.